Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. So we've been making comments for 5 years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. I think it's safe to say that it's been a chaotic year for Rogers Communications. It started in late 2021 with an internecine corporate battle that pitted members of the Rogers family against one another. And just as things looked like they were cooling off for the telecom behemoth, they experienced a nationwide outage that not only left their customers without access to the internet, but basically tanked a good chunk of our national infrastructure for more than a day. And now, even while their apology tour for that absolute clusterfuck continues, they're embroiled in the biggest corporate merger fight of this decade. We're recording this before the holidays, so by the time you hear this, the competition tribunal may have already ruled on the Roger Shaw merger. But we want to give you some context for what this company is all about. So we're bringing you one of my favorite recent episodes of Canada Land, The Rogers Family Compact where my colleagues at our sister show dig into the strange and fascinating history of this mega corporation. We hope you enjoy. Come and listen to a story of a man named Ted. Just a humble lawyer trying to earn a little bread. Until he had an epiphany to put a Rogers cable on the back of your TV. Goodbye, rabbit ears. Hello, Mr. Rogers. Now before too long, Ted becomes a millionaire. He and wife Loretta living life without a care. And then one day his young son Ed climbed up onto his knee and said, What's next, Ted? Cellular phones, video stores, internet, Blue Jays, Rogers Center. And now you see the Rogers name in almost every home. They even got a thing they call the Rogers Telephone. And if you ever ask him how he came to have such luck, he says, I'm just a humble lawyer and I'm trying to earn a buck. Well, he did that all right, and then some. Even got his son running cable, and telecom, and retail. Now that's what I call delegating. Yes, sir, cable is his label. So that's a novelty song once commissioned by Rogers to explain the fantastic success 
of Rogers. Nothing in there about price gouging, hidden fees, bill shock, high-pressure sales tactics, false claims about internet speeds, abysmal customer service. And then, when you finally had enough, they make it almost impossible to figure out how to cancel. And when you do cancel, they charge you a cancellation fee. And then a week later, they start calling you and telling you, come back, we value you, uh, three months for free. Well, why didn't you tell me that when I was your customer? Why are you rewarding my disloyalty? Canadians can be forgiven for delighting in the meltdown over at Rogers. A dramatic power play continues in the boardroom of one of the giants of Canada's media and communications industry, Edward Rogers. He is out. It's been a volatile week for the Rogers. On one side, eldest son Edward. On the other, his mother and sisters. But he still controls the family trust and its voting shares. The fight for control of Rogers has moved from the boardroom to the courtroom. Mr. Edward Rogers has asked the B.C. Supreme Court to declare legitimate the newly constituted board he formed. Rogers. Voracious. Arguably usurious. Rogers. Rogers is a fact of life in Canada, certainly one of the most hated brands in the country, a country with some of the worst wireless and data prices in the world. Rogers is basically a permanent tax on the public. So yes, it is delicious to see Rogers family members turn savagely against each other. Over the past couple of weeks, we have learned in fits and starts the details about Board meetings, secret board meetings, butt dials, sister against brother, son against mother, pampered princeling against Raptors president, Masai Ujiri, and thus the whole fucking country against said pampered princeling. But what I have not heard yet is why is this all happening? Really? Who these people are, really, and what it all really means, if, in fact, it means anything at all. Well, look. I am not a business journalist. I am not a telecom analyst. I'm not even a gossip columnist. And neither are my colleagues, editor Jonathan Goldsby and reporter Cherie Sutran. We are just three media serfs living in the Rogers family feudal empire who spent the last week reading every book and article we could find about the Rogers, digging through news archives about the Rogers, talking to those who know the Rogers firsthand, and even talking to a member of the Rogers family in order to bring you today's show. The story that you're not getting elsewhere, the real story, but certainly not the whole story, of the Rogers family flameout. Wait for it. In the heart of Toronto, Canada, at a boarding school called Upper Canada College, a young man was fulfilling his destiny. When someone becomes extraordinarily wealthy, um, I think there's a tendency to try to see them as an extraordinary person whose extraordinary ideas or extraordinary innovations explain their aberrant, uh, perhaps obscene level of wealth. So when you ask that question about the Rogers empire, why Rogers? What did they invent? Where does this all begin? Is there some flash of, of divine inspiration upon which this empire is built? The first thing that you'll find is the batteryless radio. Ted Rogers was born in the spirit of invention. In 1924, Ted's father, Edward S. Rogers, invented an alternating current tube for radios. That meant radios could be powered by electricity instead of heavy, leaky batteries. Battery-free radios. So, like, you know, you got a radio, it used to have a battery, now it's got a power cord. I mean, I guess somebody had to invent that. It, it kind of reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where George is asked who his favorite explorer is, and he answers DeSoto, who discovered the Mississippi, and Jerry says, oh, like, they wouldn't have found that anyway. But, you know, all credit where it's due, there was an honest-to-goodness invention at the start of the Rogers story. But this is not like a Thomas Edison story where that innovation generated the capital from which an empire bloomed. Ed Rogers Sr., inventor of the batteryless radio, died at the age of 38. And his widow was essentially fleeced, uh, pressured to sell all of his patents and, and more in a panic. Ed Jr., known as Ted Rogers, was just a little kid. 
I was five, and you know, when you're 38, you don't have a lot of life insurance or that sort of stuff. And so most of what he had was closed down or sold, or I li- or I say stolen by some rogue. <laughs> and so we we had enough to be comfortable. The war was on. My mother was always very strong that I had an obligation to try and get it back and uh, to do my best to get the family name uh, restored in uh, communications to what it was. So, Sharice, you've been looking into, like, the young Ted Rogers story, and, and it seems like there's a little bit of, like, was he born with a silver spoon? Like, he's going to UCC, like, the family's robbed of all of their wealth from the batteryless radio, but he's still, like, that is the elite school in Canada, right? Right, yeah. So despite losing that company, the family was still set up pretty well. The younger Ted went to UCC, boarding from the age of eight. He was described as being chauffeured to school. And then in 1963, he marries Loretta Ann Robinson, who's the daughter of Lord Martinmere. He's a former British MP, and he'd served as the governor of Bermuda. So... Either way, he's got family wealth happening on a bunch of different sides. He literally marries the daughter of a British lord. He does. And then they're sort of getting into some debate over how he first got the seed funding for his first radio station, which is CHFI. According to The Globe, that money came from his father-in-law, and it's a sum of $450,000 to fund the purchase of CHFI. But then there's some sort of controversy. I'm not entirely sure what the facts are. According to McLean's, that was actually an $85,000 loan to buy that same radio station. So different sources are saying different things. But it's sort of clear that from the first step, that first building block of the Rogers empire, he was working with some hefty family support. And there's also some reports that he got money from his father in order to buy his house in Forest Hill. So, you know, there's definitely support there. I like that this is kind of like, it almost sounds like a revenge story. You know, this isn't a story of I had an amazing invention and my dad had an amazing invention and I turned it into this telecommunications empire. This is like, he's five years old, his dad dies, and his mom is like, you must restore the Rogers name to telecommunications fame. Like, this is your birthright. You have, Go get it. Yep, yep. Uh, many reports say that his mom was adamant that he's got to get the family name back, got to get the Rogers name back. Is that revenge, really, or is it? It's like some like it's like revenge against God. Is it, like it's wrathful, perhaps. But I mean, we're looking for a rosebud here, and this is as good as any because, like, you know, if you're actually trying to figure out why Ted Rogers, he's kind of the first to say it's not because I'm so smart. There's constant kind of like he's a regular guy, but there's also this idea that he's this like tenacious, relentless guy. Got to work very hard. That's the most important thing. Maybe seven days a week, week after week after week. If you do work hard like that, you're having a better chance of being lucky. I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but I try to be the best prepared. Yeah, uh, a lot of stories about Ted Sr. has a lot to do with just having guts and determination rather than specific types of intellect or, you know, genius. He There's a story, um, it's in this 94 edition of McLean's, where he's a law student and he accosts Prime Minister Diefenbaker in the bathroom. And he got into his head that he had to talk to the prime minister about some policy proposal. Um, and he manages to get five minutes with the prime minister in his office. But that five minutes is taken up by Diefenbaker making some sort of a joke. And then the prime minister leaves to go to the bathroom. And so Ted follows him into the bathroom and makes his point. And apparently the prime minister is just so completely shocked that somebody would chase him into the bathroom like that. So that's that's Ted Rogers. I'm kind of picturing like... The poorest rich kid, like the kid at UCC, you know, like, like 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 a kid with something to prove. Yeah, I mean, like, how do you how do you classify? How, what do we say was the class of someone who is uh, a member of the Rosedale Young Progressive Conservatives and leading meetings of those? Like, that's almost like how you def- like rich, more than rich, because because yeah. the, the cultural capital of traveling in those circles is sort of like you can praise him for having the tenacity to follow Deef the chief into the washroom, but there's a lot of people with tenacity who don't have the opportunity to walk into a washroom with the prime minister of their country. Um, Have you? Uh, not yet. So how does this turn into a telecommunications empire? How does this this loan? And, you know, we're talking about what year did he get this 85000 or 450000 Right, so he bought CHFI in 1960. And I think that's pretty clear cut that that happened. But from there, Ted started buying up more and more of these radio and cable companies. 
He often took on massive amounts of debt. And so that's a big point made in this book called High Wire Act. It's by Carolyn Van Hasselt. And she talks about how he used larger and larger amounts of debt to build his empire. So by 1976, he was moving into the cable TV business. And about a decade later, he had already taken over UA Columbia Cablevision and had gotten 2 million subscribers. So it just sort of went up from there. Yeah, and the book subtitle was yeah, Ted Rogers and the Empire That Debt Built. The Empire That Debt Built. Yeah, I assumed it would be like a critical book, but like he's like he's interviewed in and he seems like really happy, some light and puffs. But anyway, so apparently that that like that, that wasn't I, I don't think that was meant as a pejorative. Um like that's just how he did it. I think what you see, and it's with successive waves of technology, like FM radio, he was early to, then cable he was prescient about. So if you're gonna say like this guy actually earned it. Well, hard work is one thing that he gets credit for, and the other is is like, oh, he knew the trends. I want to push back on that a little bit because, like, if you are doing business in Canada, you have the benefit of seeing how these things are playing out in the States. You, you Like, there are a lot of people who knew that the internet was going to be a big deal. There are a lot of people who before that knew that cable TV, like, you knew that cell phones were going to be a big deal. You knew that FM was going to be a big deal. But you didn't necessarily have $450,000 from your father-in-law to go and buy, like maybe you buy TV stock, not a TV station, you know? So that prescience, sure, give him credit for that and give him credit for the hard work, I guess. But uh, I think a lot of this is just that he was a balls-out gambler. Like it seems like though he was a pretty comfortable guy who married into a lot of wealth, he was still willing to leverage everything to gobble up more and more and more. And when he saw a new, you know, radio to TV – Get as many TV stations as possible. Get as many radio stations as possible before that, and just empire building, empire building. Yeah, and yeah. not just a gambler, but well, of course, as you said, like someone who actually had the resources to gamble with in the first place. Yeah, I will say there's an element of privilege there. He had a place to land if it failed. He's not really gambling with his own money. <laughs> I mean, there was probably some of his money in there somewhere. <laughs> At some point, And I think I did hear that he actually mortgaged his own house. And I guess that's it, is that if you're among people who are comfortable, p- comfortable people get conservative. They don't want to lose what they have. If he was always willing to put it all on the line. And there's a story that, I, that comes up earlier when he had his earlier partners in the wireless business. And ultimately, they get pushed out. And they're asked about him. And they say, you know, Ted Rogers is a good friend, but he can be a difficult partner. To be a great entrepreneur, do you have to have a killer instinct? Do you have to win even if it means losing a friend? Uh, yes, particularly in a growth industry where huge sums are needed to be invested. Um, sometimes the people who started with you don't have the resources or the interest. They're in other businesses, and uh, it just isn't going to work. Yeah, I mean, and he, you know, in an interview toward the end of his life for that same book about the empire of the debt belt, he was asked, when did you ever feel comfortable enough financially to consider yourself rich? And, you know, he says, when you have shares in the family company that you don't want to sell, you really don't consider that to be rich. So I felt blessed and felt we were fortunate, but I've never felt rich, sort of like rich people do have that money all over the place, liquid securities, bonds, et cetera. I've never felt rich in that way because I'm not rich in that way. I mean, I owe money. I still owe money. Yeah, and debt kind of throughout the entire empire. I, I, yeah, I assume, that's what, I assume that's what they're first to. There's another element in this as we do this kind of thing that we do about the titans of industry and, and capitalist gods where we interrogate their biographies. This doesn't happen without government participation. It's a great point. Yeah, so I guess the Rogers story is first and foremost about Ted Rogers being this sort of special person, being relentless and driven, but... The fact is he couldn't succeed by determination and hustle alone. I mean, you can't build telecom infrastructure without government help. You need public frequency, public licenses. You need the right to bury cables under people's property or hang it. You need the government. Jonathan, we don't think of Ted Rogers or Rogers as politicized in the same way that we think of, like, the Murdoch empire. You know, you think of Rupert Murdoch and you think of right-wing news media. I confess... I don't really know much about the political leanings or the political orientation of Ted Rogers or of Rogers. What can you tell us? So Ted Rogers was a young was a young conservative. Uh, there's a story in The Globe, 1953, him speaking to a rally of the young progressive conservatives at Lord Dufferin School in Toronto. Uh, there's not a direct quote, but the author paraphrased him, saying, he told 120 young PCs that each election, one million new voters went to the polls, and he was confident most of them would vote conservative. Youth, he said, had a right to be represented in government. He was definitely part of the conservative political establishment for quite some time and was kind of uh, fans of it. He backed Stephen Baker, which was at the time was like the anti-establishment candidate for 
conservative leader, I believe, uh, and then later back Joe Clark. And one among the things he credits was that he was the person who signed up Brian Mulroney to the Conservative Party initially. And uh, he had a picture of Mulroney on his wall in, in the wall in his office, according to a profile in Report on Business in 1989. So an active player at the highest levels of conservative politics for decades. At the very least, he liked to be photographed with people. But yeah, I mean, they're obviously closely friends with the Tories and we can get into, we, we, we can get into that later. Yes. One kind of wonders when it comes to needing something from the CRTC, how those connections might help. Well, I imagine they would probably help more when one particular party is in power. But I mean, you know, the, teleco- the telecoms tend to be very friendly with, with both parties that alternate governing for that very reason. And at a certain point, the telecom regulation is stacked with people who worked for Rogers and other telecom companies. Yeah, that's that tends to be how capitalism evolved, has evolved. It's a, it's a sad thing. All right. So that's like a ridiculously abridged version of how Ted built the Rogers empire. And it, like it's, it's just a series of like placing the right bets where ride the FM wave, ride the cable wave, ride the internet access wave, and then finally mobile and, you know, if you're really gambling everything each time, you got to get it right each time. And it seems like he did. I feel like there was a misstep or two, but he got it right enough of the time. And that's the key point. But now Ted is dead. And all his kids instead want to bust rhymes off the top of their heads. Sorry. Apologies to KRS-One. Um, apologies to everyone, actually. What Ted's kids actually wanted was uh, very much on his mind as he was ailing before he died at age 75. In his last interview with Alan Gregg, here's something creepy he said. You end uh, the book, and, and a lot of the focus, the press focus of this is on succession. It's sexy. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. In the current context, seeing what the mess that we're about to talk about, hearing Ted say succession is sexy, even in the context of the public's interest in it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely uh, what he meant. He was correct, and it's actually it's interesting to think about, yeah, even while he was still alive, how many things were were in fact written about the succession going back at least to like 1990 or so, how like how that this has been a focus of ongoing <laughs> constant media speculation since then. Though sexy is an odd choice of words. Let's get into it. Sharice, who's Generation 2? Who are the Rogers kids? Well, Ted and Loretta had four kids. Lisa, Martha, Melinda, and Edward. And they all grew up in this sort of privileged, upper-class life. And based on many, many accounts, there was always this rivalry between Melinda and Edward. Sharice, we're going to go through all four of Ted's kids to figure out what roles they play in this drama. Let's start with Ted's son, Ed. Well, Ed... What I've learned about Ed is that he's kind of a polar opposite from his dad. So Ted was known to be this hardworking, super-focused type. And his son Ed kind of had this reputation of being more of a party boy. This is a report in the Globe and Mail, and it goes over Ed's life. It says that he was his fraternity's treasurer and somewhat of a practical joker in university. He was known for his motorcycle t-shirts and this nickname, Fast Eddie. He had the signature prank, and that was putting ore gel, so that toothache gel that you can buy at the drugstore, he would put it on his friend's beer bottles so that it would numb their mouths. Ew. (laughs) Yeah, kind of weird. So when talking about his son, Ted wasn't the kindest. He described his son as being sort of an accountant type. In this piece in The Globe, he talks about sending Ed to work at Comcast after he graduated from Western University. So he says that he told his son's bosses to give him every shit job, make him understand what it's like to have to work. So that's sort of the relationship that Ted had with his son. There was also something that sort of separates Ed from the rest of his family, and that's his wife, Suzanne. Joining us now is socialite and fashionista, Suzanne Rogers. What? It's wonderful. It's about time we came out and celebrated our own here in Canada. You look beautiful. What are you wearing tonight? I'm wearing international designer nominee Erdem. She's this fashionista. She wears these extravagant dresses, loves throwing parties. She's known for this annual fashion show held in Toronto called Suzanne Rogers Presents and usually has designers like Oscar de la Renta, Marchesa, all that stuff. She's sort of a fixture in the socialite scene and everything that this prim, 
upper crust Rogers family isn't. If you see a photograph of them together, it's really funny. Like, uh, and I'm not making fun of her. Like, the contrast is what's funny. Like, the Rogers family looks very waspy and prim and reserved. And then there's just, like, extra. Like, Suzanne looks, like, campy. And she's wearing, like, these gowns with these big trains. Like, she's, like, enjoying fashion. She likes the attention. She's, like, She's blonde. known for her really big hair, big blonde hair, big eyes. You know, making a statement. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So you said that this created like a rift or tension in the Rogers family? Like this was this was not, I guess, who they wanted Edward to uh, to settle down with? Well, not really sure about that. But Kelly Pullen reported in Toronto Life that Suzanne sort of caused some problems within the Rogers family. She would call up employees in Rogers Media Division and look for personal favors, or she would request magazine coverage of herself or charity events. Um, There were rumors that she had this million-dollar clothing allowance, which wasn't really a good look at the time when the company was already under fire for price gouging. I think this is so interesting in, in, in Kelly's piece in Toronto Life. And we spoke to Kelly, and we'll hear from her later in this episode. But in an American context, like maybe this is like one of the things that actually does separate this family from everything from fictional portrayals in succession to your Trumps, Murdochs, and elsewhere. It's expected for people to be like Suzanne Rogers in big, wealthy American families, especially if it's a media empire, right? In Canada, it's like if you're lucky enough by some quirk of history to be raking in billions of dollars to have this monopoly on telecommunications, shut the fuck up, you know? <laughs> Keep a low profile. Don't make a big show of yourself. But I, if you're the kids of those people, you can have an Instagram account where you show off your wealth however you like. Well, that's why these things break down because it seems like at, at a certain point in generationally, uh, those old guard Canadian establishment rules are, are no longer observed. And Suzanne does pop up in coverage as like – this was something that actually fueled into the rift with Melinda. Can we talk about Melinda? Right. So in opposition to Ted, Melinda was a lot more like her father. In his autobiography, Ted actually writes that Melinda was the most like him. He said they looked similar. They're both sort of lanky and dark-haired. And in a 2008 Globe article, Ted is quoted saying that Melinda is a superstar. She's bright as hell. Melinda, good morning. Tell us about how Rogers started this initiative and is really stepping up to the plate. Thanks. Um, Well, at Rogers, you know, we view all of our employees and our customers part of our extended family as we do all Canadians. And we felt it was really... She's too much like me in all the good ways and the bad ways. So that's directly from her father. And so Melinda sort of has this career. Um, She moved out to California with her husband, who works in tech, and then came back. And both Melinda and Ed worked for Rogers and sort of moved up the ranks of the company. Kelly talks about how, because Ted was such a workaholic, uh, the patriarch, you know, he even had like a little like sleeping suite uh, next to his office. If the kids wanted to see him, uh, going to work for him was a good way to do it. And that's sort of how she positions why Ed and Melinda went into the family business and were both ultimately given operational roles within Rogers Communications. But that also sets them up for, like, their at work with dad currying favor. And this is something that Ted has openly acknowledged. They both wanted their dad's job. Right, yeah. I mean, for a while, it was touch and go whether it would be Edward or Melinda who would eventually be the CEO. And 
it was clear that not only did they have a rivalry, but they were rivaling for the top spot. We're going to get back to that. Um, but I guess there you've got it. Like, you know, if you're following at home and trying to, like, f- figure out where this fits in with your succession dream casting, Ted's got his daughter Shiv there and Melinda. And uh, I think that Ed is your Kendall. They're both in place. They both want to be the successor. And here is Ted, again, in that final interview with Alan Craig, talking about who it's going to be. Uh, there's two things. One is the CEO to run the business day to day, month to month. And the other thing is for the family to name somebody who would be the long-term, in charge of long-term planning. You're right about this. Is the succession planning for you is really on two tracks. On two it? tracks. And Edward has been chosen by me and by this Will. This is your son, Edward. To, uh, to be the second one. Now, he and Melinda would, would like desperately to also be the CEO, but that will be up to a board committee and then the board. And we have, as you pointed out, a fair number of very talented and experienced people. And so right now it would be, uh, despite my being so proud of everything Edward's done, he's been there for 17 years. He's done every crappy job there is. He's not been spoiled. He's met his targets. So he says, well, why not me? And he's right, except that there are others that have more experience. And the board will have to make that decision. It's too hard for a father. Ted's fibbing. What he's saying is that it's too hard for a father to have to make this choice, to choose between his own children, who's going to be his successor, who's going to wear the crown. That's a decision for the Rogers board to make. You know, it's going to be out of his hands. And I hear that as like a gesture towards he's telling the world, he's telling Bay Street, he's telling the stock market, we have good corporate governance here at Rogers. I don't just get to like decide by fiat that my boy is going to be the new CEO. You know, we, we've got a board of directors who's going to d- decide. And maybe it sounds like he's even gesturing towards it's not going to be one of my kids here, but that's not my decision. That's the board's decision. But that wasn't true. I mean, Ted did not step back and let the board make that decision. He picked his successor himself. Sharice, who did he pick? Did he pick Ed or Melinda? He picked neither. He picked Nadir Muhammad, passing over both of his kids. And according to journalist Kelly Pullen, it was based on Ted's opinion of his son, Ed. Well, yeah, and I don't know that he thought that Edward deserved it necessarily, not at that point. I mean, he has been quoted as saying that he thought Ed was like a fine wine and needed to mature still. And I think he made it clear that he wanted Nadir Muhammad to take the job at that point because he felt Ed wasn't ready. And, you know, I think obviously a lot of people agreed with that. I mean, and having Muhammad in that role created stability. There was continuity within the company. And so... Uh, it was the logical choice. So my understanding about Nadir Muhammad, this is like an executive that they wooed from a rival telecom company. And you can look at it like we've got Nadir Muhammad running wireless. We've got my son, Ed, running cable. And, you know, Nadir did better. He should be the CEO because, like, his unit performed better. And, you know, there's these stories of these board meetings where they would be reporting if they met their targets or not. And Ed would be reporting, like, kind of middling results from the cable world. And Nadir Muhammad would be like, well, wireless is off the hook. And Nadir is just this, like, star executive at Rogers. Now, of course, we're talking about a time when cable is waning and wireless is booming. So, you know, you could argue from Ed's point of view that he was kind of set up to fail and Nadir was set up like, how could you lose? But, you know, it, it is true that Rogers was the telecom company that brought the iPhone to Canada, that, that invested in GSM. And there seems to be no question that Nadir Mohammed is like an incredibly talented, effective CEO. And Rogers really took a massive boost up under wireless, which was something that Nadir Mohammed kind of captained. Yeah, totally true. Although you can totally see why Ed might find this unfair to be compared to Nadir, who is, you know, in charge of this exploding market. So that leads to Nadir getting the top CEO job. And here is the interesting thing about this. Nadir is stepping into kind of a poisoned role. It's the top job, but he, after Ted's passing, has to still deal with Ed and Melinda. Let's not forget Melinda was also passed over. And he knows that not only are they going to be there uh, resentful that he got the job, but because of the way that Ted set up the corporate governance of Rogers, they can really make problems for him. This is what Ted did. Beyond just setting up the Ed versus Melinda dynamic in terms of like psychosocial machinations, he also set it up that like neither of you is going to be CEO, but ultimately 
the CEO answers to, no, not the board of directors. I mean, yes, but the board of directors ultimately answers to the Rogers Family Trust. And he creates this dual structure whereby 10 people sit in this Rogers Family Trust, and that includes his kids and other members of the family and then his trusted advisors from way back when. And effectively, they can trump the board of directors on anything. They can install CEOs. They can replace board members. Amongst those 10 members of the Rogers Family Trust, who is the uh, first among equals, who actually leads that group? Ed Rogers. So if you're the CEO, you've got Ed Rogers and Melinda Rogers as junior executives to you, but they also ultimately decide your fate. Here's Kelly Pullen again. During Mohammed's time, there was a lot of, reportedly a lot of interference by the family in the day-to-day operations or attempted interference. And I think Mohammed, like the, the CEOs that came after him, tried to find ways to keep the, <laughs> the family out of the day-to-day operations more. And, and I think, you know, that's how Mohammed, that was sort of his parachute out, was that he when he went to renew, we're talking about renewing his contract, he presented them the board with a new organizational chart and Ed and Melinda were not on it. And so that forced the board's hand because if the board wouldn't sign on to his new vision and org chart, then he would have to be let go. And then so he was able to resign as opposed to being fired. Although that we, they never publicly said whether he was fired or resigned. But anyway, he triggered, he kind of, he triggered his own exit. He got himself fired on purpose. In a way, yeah, yeah. And so what Nadir Muhammad, who seems very smart, insisted upon, some people call it a golden parachute. I've heard it also referred to as the anti-ed provision of his contract as CEO, which is that if at any point his strategic vision for the company came into conflict with the board of directors, but we all know what that actually means. If, if it comes into conflict with what the family trust is asking for, he can leave with two years severance, something like that. And ultimately, that is what happened with Nadir Muhammad. He walked away with $23 million. So that's been the template for how Rogers has been run since Ted Rogers died. Like every CEO, and they've gone through like a number of CEOs in a short period of time, each CEO has one of these anti-ed clauses in their contract. And the funny thing is, like, some of these CEOs, as I understand it, have basically been installed by Ed Rogers. Like, Guy Lawrence was uh, somebody who came in there with, I think, both Melinda and Ed's approval. And then Joe Natale was, I think, Ed has taken credit for finding Joe Natale. So uh, I don't know if it, if at some point, you know, Ed stopped wanting to be CEO. And, and some people have suggested to me that he doesn't want the responsibility or the workload of being CEO. And that he's he's happier to kind of, like, be pulling the strings from behind the scenes from the family trust. But... In any event, this is what's been happening. He brings in these CEOs, and as CEOs, yes, they can remove Ed and Melinda from their operational roles, but they can't do anything about the family's ultimate authority and Ed's ultimate authority as the guy in charge of the family trust. Of course, he's not the only family member. He's not the only Rogers in that family trust. And this is the way that Ted wanted it. This is how he set things up. And it has everything to do with what's happening now. Even beyond the Ed and Melinda rivalry, he made sure that his family maintains a lot of power at Rogers. And that brings us to the rest of the family. Let's begin with the Rogers matriarch. We haven't really talked about Loretta Rogers, the wealthy daughter of a British lord, proper and prim Loretta. I'm sure that Ted would be very surprised and very flattered to know that he has been immortalized in bronze. It is most appropriate that the statue is here, the Rogers Center, a place in which Ted took great pride in. Loretta Rogers once pleaded guilty to smuggling precious gems. In the fall of 1988, Ted and Loretta went to Hong Kong for their 25th wedding anniversary, or maybe they went to other places in Asia, but they flew back from Hong Kong. And he got her some rather nice gifts, a ruby, three sapphires, a diamond-sided necklace, some gold, some jade, and even a portable CD player, which I imagine was pretty fancy for the time. When they got back to Toronto, uh, the only items she declared at Pearson were the ruby and the sapphires, which were by far the most valuable. But... For the ruby and sapphire, she told the customs person they were worth only $15,000, when at the same time, she actually had in her purse a receipt putting them at about 193000 Canadian. That meant she avoided $40,000 in duties. She was later charged with smuggling for the items she didn't declare and, and with making a false statement for the ones she did. Uh, in 1990, she pleaded guilty and got a $25,000 fine, avoiding potential jail time. Loretta Rogers, jewelry smuggler. What about Martha? 
So Martha Rogers, she has a doctoral degree in naturopathic medicine, and she is a naturopathic doctor in spirit, if not strictly in practice or in law. In Ontario, you can't call yourself a naturopath, at least you're not supposed to call yourself a naturopath or a naturopathic doctor unless you're a member of the College of Naturopaths, which is the regulatory body. And she was suspended from it in 2009 for non-payment of fees, and she remained suspended until the registration was ultimately revoked in 2018. But the first thing in her Twitter bio is naturopathic doctor. And so I asked the college, like, is, is there any situation in which someone whose registration has been revoked might still be allowed to call themselves that in their social media profiles? And it turns out the answer was a, from the college was a strong no. And they immediately sent her a cease and desist letter requiring that she remove any reference to being a naturopathic doctor from her profile. Uh, that was the day before recording this, and as of now, it's still there. For her part, she told me that the, the revocation of her registration was news to her, as she graduated in 2003 and never actually formally practiced, and so let her license lapse. And then she told me, this doesn't change the fact that I'm a naturopathic doctor. Martha has uh, training as a naturopathic doctor. She has never actually worked as one. She gets like $258,000 a year for her role on like a Rogers board or something, one of her Rogers roles. I don't think anyone's pretending that their qualifications are special beyond being a member of the Rogers family. I have no opinion about naturopathy, but there is something about being revealed to be a fake naturopathic doctor that, you know, Twitter has found amusing. Somebody quipped, like, what happens if you're a fake naturopathic doctor? Do your patients get better? Finally, the Rogers kid I have heard the least about, Lisa. What do we know about Lisa? Lisa Rogers, uh, the eldest uh, adopted, she tends to be the one who mentioned the least uh, in, in the background a bit. But interestingly, because she was the oldest, she was the first to go into the family, first of that generation to go into the family business. Back in 1990, there was a Globe article uh, by Bud Jorgensen, or Bud Jorgensen, which is a great Globe business reporter name, in which has the lead, the next generation of Ted Rogers' family has made its first official appearance in the corporate empire of the communications czar. Lisa Rogers is now a director of Rogers Broadcasting Limited, a subsidiary of Rogers Communications. She was 22 at the time, and her experience, uh, she had a BA in philosophy from Western and was working as an executive assistant to Robert Cook of Robert H. Cook Associates, which was apparently a real estate consulting firm that was doing a lot of work for Rogers. Word is that she's also taking the Canadian Securities course, the lesson series that brokers must take. So um, that's interesting, huh? Yeah. So she's like a director at 22 with all this business training and then does not stay as an operational worker in the Rogers. Doesn't seem to be right now. Yeah. I mean, in that same article, Ted Rogers, who then was only 56, it wrote that he clearly hopes that one of his children will have the right stuff to climb the corporate ladder. Quote, none of them will succeed me because of my age. There will be someone who's not a Rogers in between, he said yesterday. But after that, there will be plenty of opportunity. This is sort of like the most Logan Roy-ish that I found Ted Rogers in this whole thing of, of like really kind of like one day you read something from him saying like, hey, both of my kids desperately want to be CEO. And then in other interviews, like, well, neither of them are. None, none of my kids are going to be CEOs. I want them to be CEOs, but they probably won't initially be CEOs. You know, you're making the, the show sound very – I've never seen Succession, but you're making it sound very frustrating. Oh, it's amazing. But just dangling, promising, hinting, withholding, that does seem to be something that, that he's kind of like laced into the narrative about this thing. We've covered uh, the four Rogers kids and the Rogers matriarch. Um, there are extended cast members who are not blood relations of the Rogers, but who I think could be seen as kind of like extended family or at least like uh, family in terms of class and circles. I'm thinking here of the mayor of Toronto, John Tory. So, there is a law firm in Toronto called Tories LLP. It was founded by John S. D. Tory in 1941. His sons, John A. Tory and James M. Tory, joined in 1954. That same year, John A. Tory had his own son, John H. Tory. Oh my that's God. the one who's now mayor of Toronto. John S. D. Tory, that's the eldest of the ones we're talking about, died in 1965. And then his sons, including John A. Tory, that's the one who's the dad of the mayor, inherited the, the law firm at the age of 35. John H. Tory, once again the now mayor, began working at Tory's in 1980. And if you think that's a lot of John Tory's, keep in mind that this is like the middle set of people with that name, sort of the Star Wars episode four to six in the lineage of John Tory's. I think this family needs to come up with more names. They literally named their cat Cat growing up. Um, now, shifting over to the Rogers side and 
was talking about how this intermeshes. In the 50s, Ted Rogers approached John S.D. Torrey, that's the eldest one, for an articling position, and the elder Torrey referred Rogers to his son, John A. Torrey. So Mayor John Torrey used to work at Rogers. And oh, we're, we're not even there yet. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, okay. We're, okay. we're not well, even at that generation. Strike my comment, yeah. please. So in the 50s, Ted Rogers approached John S.D. Torrey, the eldest, for an articling position, and the elder Torrey referred Rogers to his son, John A. Torrey. That's the dad of the mayor. When Ted Rogers left law to start his business, which became Rogers Communications, John A., that's what's the dad of the mayor, joined the board and remained on the board pretty much up until he died in 2011. Meanwhile, his son, John H. Torrey, once again, the one who is now mayor, who had worked for Rogers' owned radio stations as a teenager, was appointed CEO of Rogers Cable in 1995, despite, as the Financial Post put it, having almost no high-level corporate experience. <sighs> All right, I'll admit that I did not follow that after the first 10 seconds, but I think that's kind of the point. That's, that, that's kind of the point. Um, if I wanted to make it clearer, I probably could have, but I feel like this is like, this is the wall of, of, of WASP. I think maybe your point was uh, best made by Richard Warnica, who tweeted, John Tory, the son of John Tory, who used to work at Tory's, is advising Ed Rogers, the son of Ted Rogers, about the future of Rogers, which is a pretty good summary of how Canadian business works. All right. I think that we have set the dinner table up as best as we're going to. And now it's time to talk about how that table got flipped over, all the fine china shattered. Ready? Yes. All right, the big question for me has been, why is this happening now? You know, the biggest corporate news about Rogers is that they have been involved in this acquisition of Shaw Communications, which is just like another, I've been told that um, amongst like the old guard at Rogers, this is seen as like the end of Ted's life work. This is Ted's legacy is just gobbling up. Like once we've got Shaw, that's, that's sort of the end of this phase. And that seemed to be going quite well in that, there was probably no serious government roadblock to prevent that from happening. It seems like an odd time for there to be such a, a big shakeup. What is Ed's problem? Because this is all driven by Ed Rogers. I can talk about what I've learned through sources, people who have been pretty close to all this. And this is what I heard. So continuing with the pattern that I described earlier, of Ed bringing in CEOs and then ultimately getting fed up with them, he started to turn on Joe Natale. Now, why? What's the problem with Joe Natale, who seems to be doing a fine enough job of making this acquisition happen? Well, let's not overlook the possibility of the most obvious explanation, which is money, greed, perhaps. Roger's stock in 2007 was 50 bucks. It's now 58 bucks. Hasn't moved that much. When you compare it to TELUS, TELUS stock has doubled over that time. Bell's stock is up more than 50%. Ed Rogers' personal wealth is very much tied to Rogers' stock. Uh, there's dividends that come with that stock, but wealthy people like to get wealthier. And pretty much anywhere else that he might have put his money in the last 15 years would have had a better return than uh, his own Rogers' stock. So, you know, we can kind of look at all these, you know, familial dramas and psychosocial and maybe I could be doing a better job if it was me and not Joe Natale. You could look at all these different reasons why he might think that Joe Natale is not doing a good job. But in any event, this is part of a pattern and he has every reason to believe, based on what happened with Nadir Muhammad, based on what then happened with Guy Lawrence, that he could use his position to start trying to install somebody else's CEO. And what I was told is that, you know, it would look really bad if in such a short period of time since his dad's death, they went on another big CEO hunt. Much better to try to kind of like quietly install somebody from within, a person at Rogers who is loyal to him, and that is Chief Financial Officer Tony Staffieri. So he goes about getting this all together and working out and approaching Tony Staffieri, do you want to be CEO? I can make that happen for you. But his big mistake is he starts maneuvering this without getting his family on side. They don't know that he's doing this, is the story I'm told. Melinda doesn't know. He gets his mom to back him by giving her information that she later says is false, information that Joe Natale is not a good CEO, he's missed certain targets. And she later like publicly decries her own son and says, my son gave me false information about Joe Natale. All of this he might have gotten away with, if not for a butt dial. By now, a lot of listeners will have heard this, but Ed's pick for new CEO, Staffieri, accidentally doesn't know it, but his butt has dialed who? 
Joe Natelli, the CEO of Rogers. And Joe picks up his phone, says, hi, you know, nobody says hi back to you. And apparently, as the story goes, Joe Natelli recognizes a couple of voices. One is the CFO, Staffieri, and the other is another Rogers executive, David Miller, not the former mayor of Toronto, David Miller. I know it's hard to keep track, but these people all have the same fucking name. In any event, Joe Natelli is now listening to his CFO openly scheme and talk about how he's going to be the CEO. What happens next is incredibly convoluted and complex and I think better documented by business reporters than we're going to get to here. But this essentially tips Ed Rogers' hand to Joe Natale and it gives Natale a chance to kind of get ahead of things. And we have a series of board games, of votes at the board of directors. We have Ed breaking off and saying that by fiat, he can have his own board of directors meeting in a treehouse where, uh, you know, he can overturn. Uh, people are getting fired. Uh, all of this is happening and coming out in drips and drabs through the business press. But the most shocking thing is the public statements. First, we're getting statements from Melinda and Loretta against Ed and then Martha Rogers Twitter just explodes with allegations. This is the part that I like. Is, uh, it's the what, part that drew you in initially. It's the part that drew me in. I wasn't really Which paying. is fair. I mean, it was the part that drew a lot of people in. What I got most excited by was when Martha said that she was going to expose the Trump scandal. Jonathan, talk to me about the Rogers-Trump connection. So on the morning of Saturday, May 1st, Suzanne Rogers began sharing things on her Instagram account, uh, Instagram stories. So they were kind of, you know, fleeting things you don't necessarily think about. They're going to be up briefly. But this story told the story of her and her husband, Ed, and their kids going to Mar-a-Lago the previous night and meeting Donald Trump. She seemed genuinely enthusiastic and happy to be there. She had, you know, a, a photograph of this famous portrait of Donald Trump on the walls and saying, the Donald, um, you know, dinner last night at the Mar-a-Lago club. Boys, happy to dress up. And then quite Pointedly, yeah. A special way to end the night was the caption she gave to a photo of her, her husband, and their two sons with the former president of the United States via the Candleland Twitter account. I tweeted about this. And uh, people reacted very strongly. Uh, Suzanne Rogers, as we discussed, is, you know, very big on the charity circuit, very big in the fashion industry in Toronto. And a lot of people in the changing fashion industry did not uh, like being associated with someone who was very much appearing to endorse Donald Trump. I mean, in the photo, he has a thumbs up. He's always giving thumbs up in photos. But it's what you would characterize as an endorsement. Now, she later, you know, in a statement basically tried to say like, no, there was nothing, nothing, nothing political at all about this intended. We just went there and, you know, and we happened to run into him on the way out, we took a photo, doesn't, don't read anything into this, which is a, a delightful statement. Now, Conrad Black later said that um, Suzanne Rogers was at Mar-a-Lago as a guest yes. of a Mar-a-Lago member. I think we have a pretty good idea of who that member is. Probably it was Jenna Batov Namovich, who is a friend of hers. She and her son, who apparently is Suzanne's godson, is featured in one of the Mar-a-Lago photos. And we know the Batovs hang out in Florida. Jenna Batov-Namovich, by the way, being the niece of Toronto Star publisher slash owner Jordan Batov, part of that family. And Jordan Batov himself happened to actually get married at Mar-a-Lago back in 2003 uh, when it wasn't necessarily toxic to be associated with Donald Trump. And yeah, and told a story to Rosie DeMano last summer about meeting him there. So... There is that family connection to Mar-a-Lago, but that is the most likely explanation for what brought them there in the first place. However, page six, which is the New York Post's gossip column, quoted uh, a source, said that they were there as Donald Trump's guests. She's getting the bulk of the criticism because she's more public than her husband, but the entire family was there. They are in television, media, sports, fashion, all of it, and it's a courtship. Trump is developing his multi-platform network. It was not coincidental that they were there. Every Canadian in Palm Beach is talking about it. Um, spokesperson for the Rogers family just outright denied that to page six, saying, no, no, they're there for a family dinner and no one ever met them until a few seconds prior to departing while walking out. So I, who cares if Suzanne and Ed Rogers go to Mar-a-Lago and pose for an Instagram picture with Donald Trump? Uh, Ed's sisters care. We know that uh, Martha Rogers cares because she's been tweeting about how she's going to expose 
her brother's Trump scandal. And, and, and what does this have to do with the meltdown between the siblings? It's really interesting to me because how many dinner tables, how many brothers and sisters, how many like Thanksgiving tables have been kind of cleaved in two because one family member is sympathetic to Donald Trump? And, and it's, it's so interesting to me to consider the possibility that maybe after years, you know, a, a lot of this obviously was happening behind the scenes. You know, there's always been murmurs of the Ed Melinda rivalry, but you don't do this stuff in public. And that's kind of the rule. All of this came out in public, and it's funny for me to think that it's because Ed got too close to Donald Trump that not just Martha, but I am told Melinda was horrified. This happened not very long after the insurrection in Washington. Trump is toxic at this point. Uh, there's a coronavirus. There's travel restrictions. Yeah, and this was you – know, keep in mind, this was like the worst period in Ontario for COVID. It was like the like April. And here they are gallivanting. So this is kind of like if you didn't like Suzanne Rogers being too flamboyant and showing her wealth because Rogers is getting a bad name for gouging people uh, with prices, this is like the most extreme version of that. This is like everybody in Ontario can't leave and isn't allowed to go to a party even. And here is Ed and Suzanne partying with Donald Trump. So who – I am told, was appalled by that. Kelly Pullen tells me that Melinda Rogers, who took COVID very seriously and spearheaded Rogers, uh, you know, rapid testing and COVID safety, uh, both in terms of their own employees and their public-facing messaging, here's her brother just giving the family. I mean, this like the fact that people hate Rogers has been a big problem for Rogers. And that's something that Melinda has been really invested in, is trying to improve the Rogers brand. And there's her brother fucking it up. You know, maybe that's what finally gets the sisters and the mother to take a stand against Ed, because his argument that this is actually just about Joe Natale failing to do his job as CEO properly, and that's why the stock is low, maybe Ed is a bigger problem for Roger's stock than Joe Natale. And maybe the way that Rogers is set up and the fact that the family has to sign off on all these things, and at any point they can change direction, maybe that is a problem for Roger's stock. Here's how Kelly Pullen put it to me. He saw room for improvement. That was his issue with Joe Natale. Well, yeah. either that was the understatement of the year or is this an improvement? What's happened since? I just don't think this degree of turmoil was worth it. I don't think what we're seeing now, it could be defined as an improvement. Initially, you know, even with Joe Natale learning that these machinations were afoot, he had a plan for that, right? So he got his act together and they went into negotiations and he said, fine, you want me to leave? That was an anticipated outcome. And the Globe and Mail has reported that he was getting ready to leave with as much as $200 million in severance. And I think that maybe that is when people involved said, wait a second, like this is not working out. This pattern can't repeat again. This isn't Nadir Muhammad with $23 million. This is $200 million. And well, it was also that the uh, Bloomberg recently reported that John Natale's, the rumors that he wasn't as successful as he could have been or the things that Ed, Ed were saying about his performance weren't necessarily true. Like, they didn't really hold up. Looking at the financials, Rogers did perfectly fine and was actually on the up after the pandemic. I don't know what else to say. I hope in the future they'll say, well, he admits that he should have spent more time with his family, but he did end up with a hell of a good family. All right, so how's this all going to end? Cherise? Yeah, well, it looks like the three women in the family have sort of come together to oppose Ed. Running the math, it's not enough. You know, the three women in the family, even plus John Tory, who... You know, it's taken aside in voting as a block. That's not enough because the power trust, the family trust, needs seven votes. Yeah, and I, mean, I don't think we mentioned this, but yeah, I mean, as Ted Rogers said, yeah, it was based roughly on the U.S. system of government. And it's like, well, yeah, we've seen how that turns out. Well, I mean, you know, you can make the argument that this is exactly what Ted didn't want, which is like one of his offspring basically like ruling like this petty tyrant and everybody, you know, 24,000 employees and the whole country is waiting. But ultimately, he does control this this family trust and he'll get his way. But you could also look at it that like, no, Ted had a check against that, which is he couldn't just do it alone. He needs to have a supermajority of the family trust. And like he, removing a president, right? Like that's two thirds. Yeah. And, and he's got that because he's got Alan Horn and Phil Lind and these old boys, you know, Ted Rogers, faithful dudes 
are on side. So Martha and Melinda and Loretta can't get the seven votes they need to oust Edward. So it's all very amusing. And there are certain legal questions that Ed could lose on, right? Like there's this open matter in the BC courts, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, according to Global News, he's seeking a ruling that would legitimize the board that he formed by replacing five of its members. And as I understand it, there is a real live legal question as to who's right. And Ed could lose that. And they could say, you know, this like weird impromptu, it wasn't actually in a treehouse. But when he got together and had his own little private board meeting, they could say that that's illegitimate. But you know what he can do then? He can just wait for the annual shareholders meeting or call a proper board meeting. And that's where he could exert the will of the family trust. Now, the only way that Ed's going to lose this is if those old Ted Rogers faithful can be pressured and stripped off and moved over to Martha, Melinda, and Loretta's side of this. And the only thing that I see motivating that is like embarrassment, that perhaps the instability and like, like this is like the original sin of this scandal is that it's gone against just keeping a low profile. That's the rule of the family compact in Canada. Keep a low profile. And fighting it out in the newspapers and on Twitter is not what one of the big companies of Canada is supposed to be doing. And it might be that those dynamics actually could potentially move those dudes uh, away from Ed. And, uh, you know, this reign of terror could be over. Yeah, and we all just keep sort of Every few minutes, just checking Martha Rogers' Twitter account to see, could there be something new? And by the time that people are listening to this, who knows what bombs Martha Rogers could have dropped on Twitter. But I'll tell you something, my friends and colleagues, uh, nothing's going to change at the end. I mean, when this is all said and done, the Rogers kids will still be filthy rich. Rogers will still be overcharging Canadians. The government will almost certainly still rubber stamp the Shaw acquisition. And the historical trend of media concentration, consolidation, monopolization will continue to the detriment of consumers. Well, I'm siding with Bell. I'm sure they have no problems whatsoever. I'll tell you what. I mean, if hating Rogers is what makes us Canadians, then maybe the Rogers family are the most Canadian family of all. That is your Canada Land episode. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Go listen to the current episode of Commons about the town of asbestos. I say this every time with Commons. I thought that I knew these Canadian stories, and then I listened to Commons, and I realized I didn't know anything. I know more about some egregious things that happened in the States with medical testing on civilians than I knew about the same thing happening right here in Canada. The story is absolutely astonishing. That's on Commons. This episode was researched and reported by Cherie Suchern and Jonathan Goldsby and produced by Tristan Capicione and Damalola Oname. Our managing editor is Kieran Odeshorn. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.
That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.